0: Created by the Rio Grande Oil Company. Calling all cars, entering all cars to Los Angeles Sheriff's Office, broadcast 86. The body of an unidentified woman found in a sack near San Fernando. That's all. Rose and quick. <laughs> of Reno now enjoy police car performance, and with the addition of Phoenix, Arizona to the long list of cities now using Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline exclusively, it is now more true than ever that throughout California, Arizona, and Nevada, more police cars, fire engines, ambulances, motorcycles, more emergency equipment of every type are powered by Rio Grande Cracked by all other brands of gasoline combined. Why did Phoenix decide to change to Rio Grande crack? Not because of price, not because of politics, but because of the performance of this outstanding gasoline. For a long time, the Maricopa County, Arizona sheriff's cars have been using Rio Grande Cracked gasoline. They have made greater speed, had greater power than ever before, and records prove its cost less per mile to operate a car on Rio Grande Cracked gasoline. That's why Phoenix, Arizona's capital and largest city, has changed to Rio Grande. And that's why the big California cities, Oakland, Berkeley, Fresno, Bakersfield, Los Angeles, and many others specify Rio Grande Cracked for all emergency cars. When are you going to change? Rio Grande's independent service stations offer you the same cracked gasoline that these cities are using. With a tank full of Rio Grande cracked, your car, too, will give police car performance. Tonight it is our privilege to welcome to calling all cars the famous sheriff of Los Angeles County, Gene Biscidu, who will tell you how the deputies in his office proceed to solve crimes. crime. Harris Biscidu. First, let me correct the common misunderstanding of what constitutes a detective. There's a lot of misinforming ballyhoo turned out regarding the romance of being a detective. In the twenty-eight years I have spent in the sheriff's office, I have failed to find any of this romance. Sherlock Holmes is a very interesting figure with his fore and aft cap and his magnifying glass, and Philo Vance is undoubtedly thrilling to the lovers of detective fiction, with a suave sophistication and his cane and spats, but I have never run into either of them when there is any real police work to be done. We law enforcement officers are concerned with facts, not thrilling fiction. And for that reason, our lives and our activities, I am sorry to have to assure you, are not half as fascinating as you may think them. The case you are about to hear does not make a good detective story. In it, you will encounter no amazing scientific sleuthing, you will hear no Superman deductions, but you will see how we set about to solve a crime. We know that most criminals make stupid breaks and blunders. Our deputy sheriffs, by common sense and hard work, ferret out these inconsistencies. Not one of our men considers himself a genius. Yet we have successfully solved 98% of our cases. The secret of being a detective is discovering the mistakes which every criminal is bound to make. Our stories, begins on Christmas Day, eight years ago. My chief criminal deputy, Captain William J. Bright, was just finishing his Christmas dinner. Uh, that, my dear, is the best Christmas dinner I have ever eaten. Thanks, Bill. From the looks of that turkey carcass, you seem to have enjoyed it. I did. But I'm not through yet. Now, if you'll just pass me another piece of that mince pie, I'll... Why, Bill,
1: you'll Oh, there's the phone. I'll answer it. Here,
2: you enjoy your pie.
0: And if it's anybody from the sheriff's office, tell them I'm... Well, tell them anything. I, I don't want to be bothered. Oh, no, he
1: says it's very
0: important. Oh. All right, I'll talk
1: to him. Yes,
0: sir? Okay. Yes, yes, I'll be right up. Goodbye. What is it, Bill? They just found the body of a murdered woman out near San Fernando. Oh, can't they handle it? No, I guess not. I'd better see what it's all about. Well, there goes my Christmas, shot full of holes. But you enjoy yourself. I'll be back as soon as I can. A very few minutes later, Captain Bright joins Captain Bean of the Los Angeles Police Department, Chief Wright of San Fernando, Deputy Amstein and Autopsy Surgeon Webb in a mortuary in San Fernando. We've all been out to the scene of the crime, Captain Bright, but as the corpse was found in the county, we thought we'd better wait for you before we began an investigation. Quite right, Chief. Who found the body? Well, a couple of Italians, Jack Capula and Danny Teller. They were walking through a field on the outskirts of town, and they saw a bundle wrapped up in this canvas sack. They thought it was a bedroll, but as you can see, they were mistaken. Any evidence where the body was found? Well, tire marks, but the rain has washed them so badly that they're worthless for identification. What's your opinion, Doctor? Well, the body's a woman, about 45 years old, weight of about 160, light brown hair and blue eyes. She's gagged with her own apron. Hands tied behind her and her legs doubled up and tied behind her back. How was she killed? She was clubbed over the nose, but she probably died from strangulation and exposure during the rainstorm last night. How long has she been dead? Well, I'd say between 6 and 12 hours. Any identifying marks on the clothing, Chief? No, none whatsoever. Here's something to identify her by. Look at his right hand. Mm, pretty badly mangled. Oh, like a claw. Apparently injured in an accident some time ago. Oh, that ought to make the identification easy. But the human claw does not make the identification easy. For days, Deputy Sheriff checked the descriptions of missing women although several of them are known to have claw-like right index fingers, still none turns out to be the mysterious victim of the sack murder. Then, an unexpected telephone call comes into the sheriff's office. I think that murdered woman with a claw-like finger used to live across the way from me. Excited, Deputy Sheriff takes the informant to the mortuary in San Fernando to identify the body, then bring him back to Captain Bright's office. I'm positive, Captain Bright, that the murdered woman is my neighbor from across the street. What is her name, Mr. Whittier? Uh, she went by the name of Molly Burke, but she told me her real name was Mrs. Amelia Appleby. Well, why did she use another name? Uh, to avoid relatives who were after her money, she said. I understand she inherited nearly a million dollars from her husband. And you say this Mrs. Appleby lived across the street from you? Yes. When did you last see her? The day before Christmas. She was standing on the porch arguing with Dr. McMillan. Hmm. Dr. McMillan? Who oh, so is he? Yeah. Well, he was a friend of Mrs. Appleby. They used to quarrel a lot. She told me that she's afraid he tried to put her into an insane asylum so he could get control of her property. Is Dr. McMillan out there at the house now? No. Some people moved in day after Christmas. They did? Yes.
1: And I called Dr. McMillan a couple of days ago when I saw these new tenants to find out what had become of Mrs. Appleby. Hey, he was very short with me. Told me she'd gone to San Diego
0: and hung up. Oh. Where does this doctor live? It's the Radford Arms apartment on Western Avenue. Fine. Amstein. Uh, True Yes, Captain. Check on the Dr. McMillan at the Radford Arms on Western Avenue. He's a friend of our murder victim. See what he knows about her. Yes, sir, right away. You the landlady? Yeah. What apartment is Dr. McMillan's?
1: Oh. But Dr. McMillan ain't in, and I don't expect him back tonight.
0: He's pretty definite about it, eh, Bert? I'll say, I guess we better try again.
1: I told you Dr. McMillan ain't in.
0: We're deputy sheriffs, ma'am, and we want to know how to reach Dr. McMillan.
1: It's important. I told you he ain't in. He won't be in tonight at all.
0: What's his apartment number?
1: Apartment seven, but he ain't there.
0: We'll see about that. Apparently she's under orders. Yeah. Well, Quarter and seven. Uh, it's just on the hall here. yeah there it is. There's somebody moving around in there. Uh, we'll know pretty quick. You, Dr. McMillan? Yes. You're uh, under it. arrest. What? What? I, I don't understand. Captain will tell you all about it down at headquarters. Uh. He wants to ask you some questions. What's the idea of all the papers spread on the floor, Doctor? Figuring on leaving town? No, I, I was just looking through some things of mine. Mm. Some things of yours. Most of these papers seem to bear Mrs. Appleby's name. Well, yes, some of them are Mrs. Appleby's. I'm handling her affairs. I'm her manager. Where is she now? Oh, uh, Mrs. Appleby? Yeah? Why, uh, she's gone to San Diego. Look at that, sir, John. Black glove, right-handed. Whose glove is this, Doctor? Why, oh, I, uh, I guess it's mine. Yeah? Well right on. Very well.
1: I could have told you it wouldn't fit. Come along. We're going to talk to the captain.
0: Without telling Dr. McMillan the reason for his arrest, Captain Bright questioned him for hours, during which he discovered that the doctor had met Mrs. Appleby at church and that after they became fast friends, she employed him to handle her affairs. Then he veers the questioning to the doctor's professional background. You have been practicing medicine in Los Angeles, Doctor? No, I, I've i been interested in uh, real estate since I came out to the coast. I see. Uh, where have you practiced medicine? Well, I uh, was in St. Louis for a while, and uh, then in Bobbin, Texas, I... I had a practice in uh, Panthersville, Texas, for eight years. And uh, when did you come to Los Angeles? Uh, About uh, four years ago. Done pretty well in the real estate business? Oh, I can't complain. Things things haven't been so good lately, though. (laughs) Is that the reason you killed Mrs. Appleby? Why did you kill Mrs. Appleby? I didn't kill her. She's not dead. Here's a picture of her body wrapped in a canvas sack as she was found in a wet field near San Fernando. You left her like this. No, no, you you must be mistaken, Captain. i I, I can't believe that Mrs. Appleby is dead. I, I, I saw her only a few days before Christmas. She told me she was going to San Diego and uh, asked me to be sure to rent her house for her. Oh, no, Captain, Mrs. Appleby isn't dead. She's, she's in San Diego. Well, perhaps you're right. We can make mistakes like other human beings. Surely this is one of them, then. I notice among the papers we found in your apartment uh, this will in your favor, made out by Mrs. Appleby on hotel stationery. Oh, yes, uh, Mrs. Appleby uh, gave me that as proof of my authority to, uh, to handle her affairs. Doesn't look like a very businesslike authorization to handle a million dollar estate. Well, oh, that, that's the way Mrs. Appleby does things. I see. Rather eccentric, eh? Yes, I suppose you could call it that. Uh, where were you on Christmas Day, Doctor? Christmas Day? And, well, I... I took some presents to my wife in the morning. Yes. Oh, your wife? Were oh, you married then. Uh, oh, uh, yes, but uh, separated. All right. Christmas presents in the morning. What did you do the rest of the day? Well, I... Uh... I went to hear Bob Shuler preach in the evening. The rest of the day I spent in my apartment. Well, well, uh, I'm sorry I missed old Bob on Christmas myself. Uh, what did he preach about? Uh, he talked about the uh, uh, fireman's football team and uh, Mayor Cryer. Did he read from notes as usual? No, he uh, spoke uh, extemporaneously. That's interesting, isn't it, Crucial? Old Bob Shuler talking about the firemen football team <laughs> on Christmas Day. <laughs> yeah, I got a kick out of that. I uh, say, Captain, if you don't want me in here, I'll get out uh, get at the rest of that evidence on the Kokumoto case. All right, Crusher. How's the cleansing going? Bill just trapped the doctor on the subject of Bob Shuler's sermon on Christmas. He gave me the office to check it. Hello? Reverend Shuler?
2: Hey,
0: King. This is Deputy Crusher of the Sheriff's Office, Reverend Shuler. Yeah. You remember the text of your sermon on Christmas? Uh, yes. Did you talk about the fireman's football team and Mayor Cryer?
1: I certainly did not. I preached the story of the nativity.
0: Well, I was just interested to know.
1: Hey, what is this? A joke?
0: Oh well. Checking a story of a suspect. He's trying to use you as an alibi. Thanks a lot, sir. You're quite welcome. Not the dope. One strike on the doctor. Now, uh, Dr. McMillan. You and Mrs. Appleby... That evidence uh, doesn't seem to tell me on that locomotive case, Captain. I didn't think it was. Now, uh, let's see. Where were we? Uh, oh, yes, yes. Uh, Dr. McMillan, did you and Mrs. Appleby always get along together? Oh, yes. We were the best friends. Then why did you crush in her skull on Christmas morning? I didn't. You're positive you didn't kill Mrs. Appleby? That's right. But there's a bloodstain on your coat lapel right now. Why? <laughs> but
1: Oh, oh, that, oh, that
0: I, uh, Why, I, uh... much about that while I, while I was shaving? You, you can uh, see her on my cheek uh, where I cut myself. In the habit of shaving with your coat on? Uh, oh, I, uh, it, it's, uh, Perhaps you'd like to see the body of the woman you didn't kill.
2: Uh,
0: yes. I think that's the best way to end this unfortunate case of mistaken identity. I, I'm positive Mrs. Appleby is not dead. To the mortuary in San Fernando, Captain Bright has his prisoner there to inspect the body of the murder victim. Well, Doctor, is this Mrs. Appleby? Yeah. looks something like her. You recognize this human claw, don't you? No, I never saw that finger before. However, I am convinced that this is Mrs. Appleby, And I'm convinced that you killed her. (laughs) There, my dear captain, you are in terror. Back at headquarters, the baffled officers consider their case. Well, boys, we've got a corpse, and we know whose it is. We've got a reasonable suspicion of the identity of the murderer. But our evidence against the doctor is all circumstantial. Quite right. And insufficient to convict him. Or, for that matter, even to obtain an indictment. What gets me is the fellow's calmness. He's too calm. An innocent person would be more flustered than he is. I wouldn't be surprised if he had a previous criminal record. Crujoin. Yes, Captain. Send his prints and mug to Washington for a check, will you? Yes, sir. I'll take care of it. Now, um... Let's go over this evidence again. First, is the fact. We found canvas and a rope like that in the garage of Mrs. Appleby's house. Which doesn't lead us anywhere, excepting to indicate that she was murdered in her own home. But have you noticed the knots with which the sack is tied? What about them? They're all the same. And I observed that the knots used to truss up the body were the same as these used on the sack. Any of you boys recognize this type of knot? Maybe the murderer was a sailor. The oh, devil he was. He's not for the kind doctors use to tie sutures on wounds. I know, I went to medical school for a couple of terms. for physician's not, eh? Which brings us back to Dr. McMillan. Right. Which is, again, purely circumstantial evidence. Uh, What's the next exhibit? This pair of black gloves. Is on the left-hand one in Mrs. Appleby's home. The right-hand one in the doctor's apartment. Hey, that reminds me of an interesting fact. What's that? Have you noticed that none of the friends and neighbors of Mrs. Appleby, even including the doctor, had ever observed that claw finger on her right hand? That's right. And that's the one point in which we'd hoped to get an identification. My guess would be that she wore gloves and always kept the deformity hidden. So? Suppose uh, that there was um, a struggle. Mrs. Appleby ripped off a glove to, to fight the doctor off to, uh, well, to scratch him. He's got scratches on his face, if you remember. But he never got them shaving. And as I pointed out to him, it isn't customary to shave with your coat on. But
1: a scratch face would bleed
0: onto the lapels of his coat. Right. So after the struggle, which resulted in Mrs. Appleby's murder, Dr. McMillan, looking around the room for damaging evidence, saw the glove, stuffed it into his pocket, took it to his apartment. All very well. But still, circumstance. We we need more than that. Uh, Cruchon. Yes, sir? You get those inquiries off regarding Dr. McMillan's record, if any. And in the meantime, the rest of you boys get busy rounding up friends of the doctor and of Mrs. Appleby and see what they have to say. While the sheriff's office awaits a reply to their inquiry regarding Dr. McMillan's records, deputies are busy interrogating friends and neighbors of the murdered woman, while national publicity given the case by the press helps the work of the officers. Finally, Captain Bright interviews the doctor again. Now, uh, Dr. McMillan, I believe you told me that you and Mrs. Appleby got along very well together. Oh, we did. Now, several months ago, you two took uh, a trip east, didn't you? Yes, we went to Chicago to look over some of Mrs. Appleby's holdings. And in Chicago, you stayed at an apartment managed by a Mrs. Carl Spee, didn't you? Uh, yes. Mrs. Spee has written us, informing us that you quarreled frequently while there and that on one occasion, Mrs. Appleby screamed for help and Mrs. Speech was forced to unlock the door to go to her rescue. She states that she found Mrs. Appleby almost unconscious, and that you swore at her and left the room. Mrs. speech said that Mrs. Appleby confided in her that she was in constant fear that you would kill her. What have you to say to this? Uh, Mrs. speech was jealous. I think she had a crush on me. What she says is not true. It's spite work. Perhaps. Uh, tell me, Doctor, have you ever been arrested? No. No? Recognize these papers? They are your record from Leavenworth, where you were sentenced for selling narcotics while you were practicing medicine in Waco, Texas. Yeah, well, I
2: had
0: forgotten about that. Rather a convenient memory you have, Doctor. You came back from uh, Chicago by way of the Yellowstone, didn't you, Doctor? Yes. Yes. How did you know? Oh, we have our ways of obtaining information. Did you have any disagreements with Mrs. Appleby while you were visiting the Yellowstone? I... No. You don't seem very positive. The answer is no. Not according to our information. It is a matter of record at the park ranger's office that you attacked Mrs. Appleby and would have choked her to death had not a couple of rangers interfered. What about that? I have nothing to say. Now, uh, when did you last see Mrs. Appleby? December 22nd. You're positive about that? Yes, yes, positive. Yet your photograph has been identified as that of a man seen on Mrs. Appleby's front porch on the day before Christmas, December 24th, arguing with her. A few moments later, you were seen walking toward the bus stop while Mrs. Appleby followed you, loudly abusing you. Why, Dr. McMillan, we have the statements of half a dozen people to whom Mrs. Appleby has confided her fear that someday you would kill her for her money. You see, doctor, your victim's hand... That hand is so much like a claw. It's stretching after you from the grave, reaching for you, clutching for its vengeance. A pretty speech, Captain. But you can't scare me that way. Well, what have you got to say? What do you think of the discrepancies in your stories? Well, I must admit it sounds pretty bad, but I I didn't kill Mrs. Appleby. We're convinced that you did, and we're going to see that you stand trial for her murder. The evidence procured by Captain Bright and his men is sufficient to obtain an indictment from the grand jury charging Dr. McMillan with murder. But days and days of intensive work follow during which the sheriff's office seeks to build their case so strong that the doctor cannot possibly beat them before the jury. On February 14th, 1928, Dr. McMillan goes on trial before Judge Edmonds in Superior Court. Point by point, the prosecution breaks down the doctor's story.
1: You have testified, Dr. McMillan, that you have but one bank account in your name. Is that correct?
2: It is. And perhaps
1: you can explain to the court the existence of these four passbooks from four different banks, in which you have deposited and from which you have withdrawn large sums. <laughs>
0: Appleby was going to San Diego. She told
1: me Mrs.
0: Appleby had gone east. Mrs. Appleby and
1: I never had a serious quarrel. I had to drag Dr. McMillan away from Mrs. Appleby when he was choking her to death in Yellowstone last summer. She told me that they quarreled constantly and that she feared Dr. McMillan would kill her someday.
0: I attended the Trinity Methodist Church Christmas night and... The Reverend Kuller did not speak from notes.
1: I spoke from notes Christmas evening as I do at every service. I'm a
0: member of Trinity and I know Dr. McMillan, but I'm positive he was not in church Christmas night. I knew nothing of Mrs. Appleby's death until Captain Bright informed me that she had been murdered. And how
1: does it happen that arresting officers found in your pocket a newspaper clipping telling of the finding of her body?
0: Appleby's alleged will, which grants Dr. McMillan power of attorney, is, in my opinion, a forgery and written in Dr. McMillan's own handwriting. The last time I saw Mrs. Appleby was on December 22nd when she left for San Diego.
1: I saw them quarreling on the day before Christmas. Yes, and I did too. And so did I.
0: I was. Merely her business manager. Yet
1: these photo sets of hotel registers prove that you posed as man and wife on your trip to Chicago. No, I... I'm not a registered physician. Yet you posed as one and practiced medicine in several towns in Texas. I did not kill Mrs. Appleby. That remains for the jury to decide. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury... We have proven beyond doubt's shadow that Dr. McMillan has studiously engineered a careful pot to gain control of the poor victim's estate, an estate worth nearly a million dollars, a prize well worth any cost to an unscrupulous blaggard such as the defendant has shown himself to be. Terrorizing this poor woman, he slowly gained control of all of her affairs, and then, having no further use for his victim, he brutally murdered her, wrapped her body in a canvas sack, and tied the package with a damning trademark, and not with which only physicians are acquainted. We have, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, provided you with a fact. You have the body, you have the motive, and we have shown you the killer. It is for you to decide the degree of his guilt. For in the minds of all of you, there can be no question of innocence. This man has broken the ancient law. Thou shalt not kill. I invoke another ancient law. An eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I ask that you find the defendant guilty and recommend for him the penalty of death.
0: Dr. Charles M. McMillan, rise and face the court. Before I pass judgment on you, have you anything to say? I... I am not guilty. In the opinion of the jury, you have been found so. And in reviewing the evidence and the discrepancies in your defense, I concur with the opinion of the jury. There is no question in my mind but that the verdict of first-degree murder is a fair one. Therefore, I sentence you to be confined in San Quentin Penitentiary for the rest of your natural life. And furthermore... I recommend that no parole shall ever be granted you. Although Dr. McMillan appealed his case, the court upheld the verdict of guilty and Dr. McMillan was taken to Folsom Penitentiary where he is still confined. He still refuses to confess his guilt. Although there can be no question in the mind of any person who reads the evidence, deputy sheriffs piled up against him. You will note in our dramatization of this case that we did not intimidate the doctor at any time. We did not use any third-degree methods or any rough stuff. We do not believe in hard-boiled tactics in the sheriff's office. It is not our business to convict criminals, and we never find it necessary to resort to brutality. We proceed in a business-like way to gather evidence for use in the court. We are just as eager to get evidence which will free a suspect as to convict him if he is innocent. There are thousands of men behind prison walls today who thought they could beat the law, But our deputy sheriffs and other law enforcement officials uncovered evidence which brought punishment to everyone. You can't make crime pay. Thank you, Sheriff Mr. Ladies and gentlemen, police cars make an ideal testing laboratory for gasoline. They use the same road you do, but drive them harder and faster. And they have proved to the complete satisfaction of the biggest gasoline users in the West that Rio Grande cracks gasoline is the most powerful, most economical, and speediest. When it comes to testing motor oil, well, you'll admit that any oil chosen by the United States Navy year after year is certainly the best money can buy. Yet for only 25 cents a quart, you can buy Sinclair motor oil in cans, the same oil your Navy uses, at Rio Grande service stations everywhere. So, you see, your neighborhood independent dealer offers you the best values of all. Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline and Sinclair Motor Oil. Each proved best by the hardest possible test. Calling all cars, attention, all cars at Los Angeles Sheriff's Office. Canceling the broadcast 86 regarding an unidentified murder victim. The body has been identified and murder is now in custody. That's all. Roll with This is your narrator, Frederick Lindsay, bidding you good night for the Rio Grande, the oil company.